All right. Romans chapter 9. I have entitled this Israel Accursed as the title. Romans chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 is what we're going to be looking at. So let's go ahead and read that together. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God blessed forever. Lord, would you speak this morning through this portion of your word? I pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And the Lord, you would transform us. Use the example of the Apostle Paul in this passage to stir us, Lord, to be more like Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we're embarking on a new section of the book of Romans. Romans can be really divided into two sections, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 to 16. 1 through 11 are doctrinal, theological. Chapters 12 to 16 are practical. They're application of the doctrine that we have in the first 11 chapters. So 1 through 11, 12 to 16. But if you take 1 through 11, that can also be divided into two sections. 1 through 8 and 9 through 11. Yeah. 1 through 8 is talking about justification and its fruits, the fruits of justification. So the first five chapters, he digs deep into this idea that we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then the fruits, we are delivered from the dominion of sin, chapter 6. We're de delivered from the dominion of the law, chapter 7. In chapter 8, he talks about our sonship in Christ, and then our absolute security. Children of God are secure in the love of God. But that brings us to chapter 9. And in chapter 9, there's a whole new theme going on. In chapter 9 through chapter 11, 9, 10, and 11, this is how Israel fits into God's sovereign plan. And so chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about Israel, the Jewish people, and God's plan for the Jewish people. And there's a lot of difference of opinion as to what these chapters are all about. So just know that going in, <laughs> most sections of God's word, it's that way. There's people disagree on what it means, but especially chapter 11, there's a widely divergent views on what that is actually teaching. I'll just do the best to try to teach what I think it means. Uh, I'm not, um, what's the word? I'm, I'm not inerrant of, by any means. I've, I have my own biases. But um, hopefully I can help shed some light on what this is teaching. I'll do my best. But here in Romans chapter 9, we're going to get into this, this great chapter that shows us the sovereignty of God in his dealings with his own covenant people, Israel. And before we jump into the first five verses, I want to try to help you get a big picture of Romans chapter 9. Because the first five verses won't make sense unless you see the bigger picture. So let's try to see what is Paul doing in this chapter. What's it about? 
Well, the first five verses tell us that Israel is accursed and separated from God. And Paul is actually saying that he's willing to trade places with them if he could. That's how much he loves Israel. And that's how much he desires their salvation. But they're cursed because they have rejected the Messiah that God sent them. They've turned away from Jesus Christ as the only Savior for sinners. So there's no hope for them as long as they will not believe upon the Son of God. In spite of all the advantages and privileges God has given them, which he's going to outline in verses 4 and 5, in spite of all that, they have turned away from God's Messiah. And then in verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, what's his point? Most of Israel is perishing. But that does not mean that God's word has failed. It does not mean that God's promises to his covenant people have failed. Now, the word failed here in verse 6 is the usual word for fallen. It's the word used in Galatians 5.4 when it says you have fallen from grace. It means to fall. Now, keep that in mind. What's the opposite of to fall? To, to stand. That's the opposite. Now, look at verse 11, because we need to read verse 6 and then read verse 11 and compare the two. Verse 11 says, Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So verse 6 says, It's not as though the word of God has fallen. In other words, the word of God stands. But what does he mean by the word of God in verse 6? I think we, un we get the answer in verse 11. Because there he says God's purpose stands. God's purpose according to his choice stands. Verse 6, the word of God stands. Verse 11, the purpose of God according to his choice stands. So I believe what we have in verse 6 is he says, even though most of Israel has rejected their Messiah, that doesn't mean that God's purpose for his people has failed or fallen to the ground. In fact, it stands. It's God's purpose according to his choice that stands. Now, how can that be if most of God's chosen people have rejected their Messiah. How can God's purpose still stand? Well, he tells us in the end of verse 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. See, just to be a fleshly descendant of Abraham is not who the promises were made to. The covenant promises of salvation were made to spiritual Israel, to the true Israel, not fleshly Israel. And just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you're part of this true Israel of God that inherits the promises. But who is the true Israel? Well, that's what he's going to tell us through the rest of chapter 9. It's those God has chosen, those that were included in his purpose, in his choice, and in his call. Verse 11. And once he makes that point, he's going to say the, the, the reason some people are the true Israel is because God chose them, God called them. But there's all kinds of objections that start arising in people's minds whenever you say that. If it's true that the true Israel is only the true Israel because God chose and called them, then does that mean God is unjust? That's his first objection in verses 14 to 18. God, you're not fair. You're not just. So he deals with that. The second objection is, 
Well, how can God find fault with anybody if they're only acting out according to his will anyway? That's verses 19 to 25. How can God judge people if he's already chosen who he's going to save and the other ones were not chosen? How can they, how can they experience the judgment of God? So Paul knows that these, these objections are going to rise in people's minds as soon as he teaches this doctrine of unconditional election. So he deals with the objections, and then he starts hurling Old Testament scripture to support the truth of unconditional election from verse 25 all the way to 29. Quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament to show that this is not something new, that he's pulling a rabbit out of a hat or something. This has been God's way, God's plan from the beginning of time. So, that's the big picture of Romans 9. Israel is not coming to Christ, but that doesn't overthrow God's purpose of salvation because God's purpose is a sovereign plan to, to call and to choose people from amongst the world uh, to be spiritual Israel and the true Israel, and these are the ones who inherit the covenant promises of salvation. And then he deals with objections, and then he gives Old Testament support for the doctrine of unconditional election. You may not even know what I mean by unconditional election, but I'll make that clear as we go along. I, I'm not going to deal too much with that this morning. Next Sunday morning, we'll get into a lot more detail about that. Okay, so that's the big picture. Now, Romans 9, 1 to 5. Paul's great sorrow, because Israel is cursed and separated from God in spite of all the privileges God has given them. That's what he's going to deal with here. So first of all, we're going to deal with Paul's sorrow, and then we're going to look at Israel's privileges that make his sorrow even more acute and more intense. Paul's sorrow, that's verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 talks about Paul's oath. Verse 2 talks about Paul's sorrow. Verse 3 talks about Paul's wish. So first of all, his oath in verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is trying to get them ready for something he's about to say that is going to be so surprising and so shocking that they would never believe him unless he takes an oath and swears that he's telling the truth. He's not going to get to that until verse 3, but he has to prepare them for what he's about to say. And so he puts himself on oath, and he calls forth three witnesses, the witness of Christ, his own conscience, and the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a guy in a court of law where he puts his hand on the Bible, and the judge says, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And he says, I do. Paul's kind of like saying, I do. I'm putting my hand on the Bible. I'm telling the truth. And I'm calling forth the witness of Christ, number one, as, as one that will testify that this is the truth. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, meaning I am in Christ. I'm united to Christ. And Christ is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And because I am in Christ, what I'm about to tell you is his very truth. Not only that, he says, I'm not lying. You can believe me. My conscience testifies with me. Now that's interesting because in Acts 23.1, Paul says, I have 
Well, I'm not going to quote it unless I read it, so I will. I'll read it to you. Acts 23, 1. Paul looked intently at the council and he said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this very day. My conscience testifies with me that I'm not lying. My conscience is not objecting to what I'm about to tell you. It testifies with me that this is God's very truth. And not only that, he says, it testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. It's not the spirit of error. So when the Holy Spirit testifies with Paul's conscience, Paul must be telling the truth because he's testifying in the Holy Spirit. So he wants these Roman believers to know that what he's about to say can be believed, can be banked on, because it's the truth of God. Now, let's move forward to verse 2. The first thing he wants them to know is that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. He doesn't just say he has sorrow and grief in his heart. There's an intensity to his sorrow and to his grief, isn't there? It's great sorrow and it's unceasing grief. It's like not a pebble, but a boulder were to land on top of you and it stays there permanently. It doesn't leave. It's unceasing. <laughs> this is a great weight that is on the shoulders of the Apostle Paul. A, that produces this great sorrow in his life. And it doesn't just come in and out, fleeting or temporary. It's unceasing. He feels this sorrow continually in his life. Now, I find it interesting, when Paul looks at the love of Christ in the end of chapter 8, you remember, I'll just read it again for you. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul looks at the love of Christ at the end of chapter 8, he rejoices with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But then he turns right around and he looks at the rejection of Israel for her Messiah and he descends into the valley of sorrow and grief. His heart's big enough to shout hallelujah at Christ's salvation in chapter 8, but it's also big enough to weep with a burdened soul when he looks at the rejection of his own kinsmen, his own Jewish brethren in chapter 9. His heart's doing both at the same time. Hallelujah, and I'm sorrowful to the point of grief right here when I look at this other issue. Now, I believe Paul here is trying to tear down some walls with the Jewish people. The Jews had great animosity towards Paul. Do you remember as you read through the book of Acts? It was the Jews that were always persecuting him. Whatever city he went to, he would go to the synagogue first, and he would preach to the Jews first. When they rejected it, he would take it to the Gentiles. But when he preached to the Jews, generally speaking, there was a riot or a mob or something that would drive him out of town. We find him getting stoned by the Jews, pelted, um, shipwrecked, um, ridiculed, persecuted from town to town. And so the Jews looked at Paul as a traitor, as a turncoat, um, someone who's not really part of them any longer. Paul had even taught in Romans chapter 2 that the Jews were not saved by their observance of the law, they weren't saved by the rite of circumcision, that they were condemned just as well as the heathen were condemned because there was no excuse 
for their sinfulness. So they looked at Paul and they didn't see a friend, they saw an enemy. So the typical Jew would feel Paul's not one of them, he's against them. Paul here is trying to help them to understand that he loves them. In fact, what he's about to say in verse 3 is unbelievable. His great, great love for these Jewish people. He says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. He's just got done telling us that most of them were not part of God's sovereign plan. They weren't part of the true Israel. But still, it's his heart desire and he still prays for them because he doesn't know who is and who is not part of the true Israel of God. So he prays and he longs for their salvation. So he's trying to break down these barriers between him and the Jewish people. That brings us finally to verse 3, which is what he wanted them to believe and what he thought was going to be so shocking for them to hear. He says there in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I could wish that I were accursed and that I were separated from Christ. Why? Why would he wish that? It's as though he's saying, I'm willing to trade places with you. You're accursed. You're separated from Christ. You are perishing because you don't have a Savior. And I could wish that I could trade places with you, that I could be accursed and I could be separated from Christ for your sake. In other words, I'm willing to go to hell if you can just go to heaven. That's really what he's getting to. I'm, well, he says, I could wish this. Now, why would he say, I could wish it? Why doesn't he say, I wish this? Because it's not possible for him to trade places with them. He just got done telling us in chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, that there's nothing in all of God's creation that can separate him from the love of Christ. So it's impossible for him to trade places with them. And even if he did trace it, trade places with them, his sufferings in hell could never atone for their sin. Only Christ could do that. So it would have no valuable effect in their life. But I don't want you to miss Paul's heart here because it's amazing. Amazing. I, mean, I think of Moses. Moses expressed something like this back in Exodus 32. Remember when he was up on the mountain receiving the law of God, the, 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 the tablets of stone? And he comes down from the mountain to the people. And do you remember what they're doing? Yeah, they're worshiping a golden calf. They're dancing around this golden calf and worshiping an idol. And Moses is so angry that he takes those stone tablets and dashes them to the ground. They, they're in a million pieces. He's so angry, he burns this idol and he, he crushes it to powder. He throws it on the water, scatters it, and makes them drink it. And then he commands them to each take their sword and kill one another, which 3,000 Israelites die. But then he makes this astonishing statement in chapter 32. In verse 31, Moses returned to the Lord, and he said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. And they've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, 
Please blot me out from your book, which you have written. Forgive their sin, Lord. And if you won't do it, blot my name out of your book. I, Lord, I am so tied to this people that I don't want to go on if they can't be saved. Lord, forgive them. Now, it's interesting. The Lord doesn't do what he said. He doesn't answer this prayer. He doesn't blot his name out of the book. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot his name out of the book. But go now. Leave the people where I told you. His prayer was denied. But still, Moses, I have to look into his heart and see such a, a burden and a love for his own people, which is amazing. And I think what they are simply doing is reflecting yeah. the intensity of the love of Jesus Christ for his people. Yeah. When Jesus came into the world, he had such a burden for the salvation of sinners. What else could cause him to go from heaven where he's worshipped by the angels and to empty himself and to come to this world poor, born in a stable, born in a manger, living his life as just unnoticed, uh, undetected, and, and then lay down his life at the end of that, taking upon himself the sin, the punishment for the sin of others. Christ is really the one who is the great example. Paul is just mirroring this heart of Christ. Moses is mirroring the heart of Christ, but it's really the heart of Jesus that you see here in Romans chapter 9. And I don't know about you, but I just, I'm, I'm wrong. I, I believe Paul meant what he wrote. I mean, how can he not? He gives us an oath. He says, I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth in Christ. My conscience bears me witness of the Holy Spirit. This is what I wish I could do. So I have to believe he meant it. Would you, can you say, I'm willing to go to hell if you can go to heaven? Wow. It's amazing love. It reminds me of various men of God gone through church history who have had a similar burden for lost souls. Yeah. John Knox, who is sort of the originator of the Presbyterian church back in the 1500s, he said, give me Scotland, Lord, or I die. That was his prayer. George Whitfield, the great evangelist of the 1700s, would pray prayers like this. Oh, Lord, give me souls or take my soul. Yeah. David Brainerd, the missionary to the American Indians in the, 18, no, the, the 1700s. He was a contemporary of um, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote this. Lord, I care not where I live or what hardships I go through so that I can but gain souls to Christ. While I am asleep, I dream of these things. As soon as I awake, the first thing I think of is this great work. All my desire is the conversion of sinners, and all my hope is in God. 1865, William Booth believed that God was calling him to go to the worst slums, the most vile slums of London, to win the worst to Christ. The drunkards, the harlots, the outcasts. And so he would go out and start preaching on the streets trying to gather in the people that nobody else cared anything about. And by 1884, so that's 19 years later, he had raised up this band of disciples that were now being sent all over the world, to Europe and to Australia and to Japan and to America. 
In England alone, by 1884, it's estimated that about 270,000 people were attending these meetings, open-air meetings. In England alone, that doesn't count Europe, uh, the other areas I've just mentioned. His motto was, go for souls and go for the worst. <laughs> so he, he would train up these preachers and he'd send them out and say, go for souls, go for the worst souls. He lived a life of poverty and self-sacrifice. When Salvation Army people, and I'm tipping my hat, he was the first general of the Salvation Army. You know, we look at the guy ringing the bell in front of Kmart around Christmas time, and we go, oh, that's the Salvation Army. We have no idea of the roots, the historical roots of the Salvation Army. This was an evangelical mission and movement of the 1800s that this stupendous. They were sending out people all over the world to preach the gospel. It wasn't a social thing like yes, right. today. It was an evangelistic thing. Mm -hmm. So when they would come to him and they would say, how can I have your burden for souls, General Booth? What do you do? How did you get this burden for souls? He would say, just stoop down and put your ear to the ground and hear the sound of multiples, multitudes of people marching to hell. Yeah. Just listen yeah. to those multitudes marching to hell and you'll get a burden for soul. At the end of his life, King Edward VII asked him to sign his autograph album. And William Booth summed up his life work in that album and he wrote these words. Your Majesty, some man's ambition is art, some man's ambition is fame, some man's ambition is gold, my ambition is the souls of men. I love that. Paul had the same kind of ambition for the souls of men. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for Israel is for their salvation. And so he travels, he sacrifices, he prays, he preaches, he writes, he lays his life out, he pours his life out, not only for the Gentiles, but also for his own kinsmen according to the flesh. And this is the kind of burden that causes missionaries to go to leper colonies or to cannibalistic tribes. It was a burden like this that caused Hudson Taylor to go to China and C.T. Studd to go to darkest Africa because they loved God and his glory and they cared about perishing sinners. So, as I have been studying this passage, I'm so convicted that I just don't have the heart, like, I don't have the kind of heart to yeah. fall in. I, I, I fall so short in this. And it's made me start to pray, Lord, would you please kindle within me a heart that looks something like this. That I really care about people that are perishing and want their salvation. Yeah. And if we can like, go through life and not care about our neighbor, the people that live on our block that are perishing, what's wrong with this? <laughs> What's wrong with us, folks? Something's really wrong. Yeah. We don't care. A burden for the lost. I think that's the main takeaway from verses 1 to 3. Do you have one? And is it compelling you to do anything to, to increase the kingdom of Christ and to reach people who are perishing? You know, I, I love Jerome's ministry down at the mission. His love for lost people compels him to go down there and preach to people at the mission or Eduardo and Marlene's ministry to, on the streets, or when we go down to the park and, and we're trying to talk to the homeless people and trying to do what we can to, to, 
to reach them for Christ. But are you doing anything with the people you know in your life? The people in your neighbors? Are you trying to get to know them? Are you inviting them over? You know, this is something that I think our own family needs to start doing more of. Make this a matter of prayer. Take it to the Lord and ask him, Lord, give me a greater burden for lost souls. Okay, let's take a look at Israel's privileges next. Verses 4 and 5. Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ was so tragic because they had so many spiritual privileges. It's like a father who had two different sons. And his first son was always the black sheep of the family. He was always getting in trouble. He was always disobeying his parents. He was always rebelling against them. He got in with the wrong crowd of kids as he grew up. And he was taking drugs and drinking and committing crimes and stealing from other people. And so his father just kind of knew. He just expected that his life was not going to end well. But he had another son, the younger son. And this son was really smart and intelligent. And for the most part, he was obedient to his father. And he had these two different kids growing up. But in the end, both of them got into drinking. Both of them became drunkards. Both of them, at the very end of their lives, uh, were wasted away through drink. They, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They became homeless. And both of those lives are tragic, but the second one is doubly tragic because he had so much going for him to start with. You see what I mean? He had, he had all these privileges, the gifts and talents and graces that he had that the, uh, the black sheep of the family didn't have, and he ended up in the same place, in the gutter at the end of his life. And Israel's rejection of Christ is so doubly tragic because they had so much that God gave them that they didn't take advantage of. And that's Paul's point in verses 4 and 5 who are Israelites. And then he names eight of these spiritual privileges that God gave the people of Israel. Number one, the adoption of sons. The adoption of sons. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God said to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Yeah. Israel was God's son. Paul says, you Israelites, you have received the adoption as sons. Now, when someone adopts a child, what are they doing? They're basically saying, I want you to come into my family. I want you to be my son. I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to provide for you. And when I die, I'm going to leave an inheritance for you. You're part of my, my family now. That's what God did to Israel. He said, I want you, Israel. I want you, Jewish people, to be my, my son. I'm taking you into my covenant. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to bequeath an inheritance to you. So Israel was given this first great privilege of being the, the specially chosen people of God, his very own son, adopted by him. Secondly, the glory. That was the second privilege. The glory. I believe it's talking about God's Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God is the manifest presence of God. Now, where was the glory of God actually seen by the Jewish people in the Old Covenant? You remember? Was he leading them? 
Was it as he was leading them? Yes, yes, because God manifested his presence through a cloud by day and a fire by night. And the cloud came up from the Holy of Holies over the top of the uh, Ark of the Covenant through the top of that tabernacle and then billowed out, mushroomed out for, I don't know, a very long, large distance, covering the whole camp of Israel. There's about two, three million people within the camp of Israel. So it's a huge mushroom cloud and it would protect them from the burning sun during the day, providing shade. But at night, this cloud turned into a fire, and they could actually see it now in the darkness, and they could follow it, and God would lead them to the next place he wanted them to go. The Shekinah glory of God, yeah. visible, manifest presence of God. No, no other nation in the world had this Shekinah, this glory, that they could actually see God's presence. Also, when... Um, Solomon was praying at the dedication of the temple. The Bible says fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice in the newly dedicated temple. Another manifestation of the glory of God in the midst of God's people. So they had this advantage that other nations did not have. Thirdly, the covenants. Now it doesn't say the covenant singular. If it did, I would assume he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, which is also called the Old Covenant. But it said the covenants, plural. So Israel benefited by many different covenants that God made with individuals or groups of people down through the centuries. The first that we read of is the Noahic covenant. God made a covenant with Noah. And the covenant was his pledge to them, his promise, that he's never again going to destroy the world by a flood. And the rainbow was the sign of that covenant. Whenever they saw the rainbow, they would be reminded, yeah, God's not going to destroy the world by a flood anymore. Never happen again. Secondly, there was a covenant with Abraham. The sign of that covenant was circumcision. That was the mark, the sign to remind them of this covenant. And the covenant with Abraham was God's pledging and promising that he's going to give them the land of Canaan. And he spells out the borders and he says, I'm going to give you this land. There then was the covenant God made through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. The sign of that covenant is, who knows this one? You know what the sign of the Mosaic covenant was? It's not as easy. It was the Sabbath. Exodus, I believe it's chapter 31. The sign of that covenant was the Sabbath. The mark, that was the mark that separated God's people from all the other nations is they kept a certain day holy to the Lord. They didn't work on that day. That's why it has such a prominence within the Ten Commandments because it was the covenant sign, which is super significant. Um, so in this covenant, God pledged that they would be his special treasure, but they had to obey the commands that he was giving them. So this one was a bilateral Covenant. There was agreements made on both sides. God's people said, yes, we will obey the covenant. And so God says, when you, if you obey my covenant, you will be my special treasure and my special possession amongst all the peoples of the world. And then there was the Davidic covenant. The covenant God made with David that one of his descendants would be seated upon his throne forever. Of course, we know that that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who sits upon God's throne and rules his kingdom for all time. So, these covenants God made, and the people of Israel knew these covenants, and they rejoiced in them, and they benefited from them. Number four, the giving of the law. That was 
a spiritual privilege given only to the nation of Israel, the giving of the law. The law was a blessing primarily because it was a tutor that led them to Christ. When, when Christ came on the scene, those Israelites who had been prepared by the law con condemned in themselves because they saw the spirituality of the law and their disobedience to it. When they saw Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, they ran to him. Paul was one of those who was converted by Christ. The law did its work in his heart, as we find in Romans 7. He learned about coveting, that it was sinful through the law. He came to Christ to be justified. So, so the law brought condemnation and a curse, but it would lead the humble to Jesus Christ to be justified in him. Number five, the temple service. The temple service. This is the ministry of the Levites and the priests and offering sacrifice to God in order to make atonement for the sins of the people and enable them to find acceptance then with God through the sacrificial system. And all of these sacrifices prefigured and pointed forward to the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Christ. In and of themselves, they weren't able to really put away sin, but they pictured the putting away of sin so that the Jewish people had the symbolic picture of the ultimate sacrifice. And when Christ came on the scene, some of them got it. The ones that the Spirit opened their eyes to see that, oh, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice for sin. So the temple service was a great blessing and a, an advantage that no other nation had. The promises. God made dozens of promises to his people throughout the Old Testament. A couple of examples. Genesis 3.15. God promised that he was going to put enmity between the serpent and Eve and the serpent's seed and Eve's seed that the serpent's seed would bruise the seed of the woman on the, he the heel but the seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ, would bruise his head, meaning he would crush him. Like if you have a, a snake, the only way really to put this snake out of business is to stomp his head. Because if you cut off, you know, cut off its body, it'll just grow another one, grow another tail. But if you want to kill it, stomp its head. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. He put Satan out of business. He destroyed the works of the devil. So there's a promise. There's the other promise in Genesis 12, 3. God made to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What a great promise. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 18. I will raise up for you a prophet like unto Moses, God says. To him all the nations must give heed. So he's promising there that someone is coming like Moses that everybody must give obeisance to. They must obey his word. Or Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, where God promises them, I'm going to make a new covenant. And part of that new covenant is, I'm going to write my law in your hearts, and you shall be my people. I will be your God. I'll forgive your sins. You'll never have to teach anybody, know the Lord, because all the people who are part of this covenant are going to know me from the least to the greatest. So he made these great promises to the nation of Israel. No other nation had these blessings, these privileges that they had. Number seven, whose are the fathers? What's he talking about? The patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
These were the fathers of the Jewish nation. Abraham was the first one. His son Isaac was the second. Isaac's son Jacob was the third. And then Joseph and on down. The great fathers, the men who heard God, walked with God. God spoke with them. Men who loved God. These are the, the great progenitors, you know, the, the first ones of this Jewish nation that they can look back and they can read about the examples of these godly men. And then finally, the greatest blessing of all, number eight, from whom is the Christ? From Israel came the Christ. What does Christ mean? You guys know? Messiah. Means Messiah. The promised one of God. The one God had been promising for centuries. From the Jewish people comes their Messiah. And he's described in a twofold way. He says, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? That's the first way. Who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. So look at this twofold description of this Messiah. He's according to the flesh, but he's God blessed forever at the, uh, the same time he's flesh and he's God. You see that there in Romans 9 verse 5? The Messiah, the one God is sending is going to be a God man. He's going to be divine and human at the same time. He's going to be God blessed forever and he's going to be according to the flesh. No wonder he can say he's over all. There's no one greater in all the universe than this Messiah I'm sending into the world. And he comes forth from the Jewish people. Jesus himself is Jewish. The perfect mediator, the combination of divine and human natures in one person. Now let's boil this down and apply it to ourselves today. Israel had these great and precious privileges that God granted to them, but they didn't respond. They didn't apply the privileges. They didn't believe when God sent the Messiah, and so they're, they are accursed, and it's tragic. It's doubly tragic. And folks, you and I are a lot like Israel. We have been born into the wealthiest nation in the world, the United States of America, which has a history of Christian influence. Now, I know we've come a long way, baby, from our earlier roots, but we, this, this nation has a history of Christian, a dominant Christian influence in its roots, in its beginnings. We weren't born into North Korea. We weren't born into Saudi Arabia. We weren't born into a country that was dominated by Muslims so that it would have been a crime for us to become a Christian. We're born into the United States of America. And what's more, we were born in uh, either the 19th or the 20th century in the United States of America. We weren't born in 500 B.C., when the only nation on the planet that had the, the knowledge of God was the Jewish people. What if we were Philistines born in uh, 700 B.C.? What kind of a chance would we even have to know the true and living God? What if we were born in 900 A.D. and the only church on the planet was the Roman Catholic Church and the whole truth of justification by faith had been obscured. Nobody was teaching free grace. They were teaching this salvation by sacraments and works and a combination of faith. And nobody really understood that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. And, the, you know, just a dark period of our, our church history. What if you were born then? 
Folks, we're born in an age when we got the internet. <laughs> Man, you can know anything you want. We have Bibles. I don't know how many Bibles we have in our house. We've got churches on practically every corner. We've got Christian preaching on radio and TV. You can go to the internet and you can hear sermons day or night if you want to. There's never been a time when the truth has not been more accessible. We are privileged. We are like Israel. And if we don't take advantage of our privileges, we are doubly tragic and doubly accountable on Judgment Day. Do you remember Luke chapter 12? Jesus said, That servant who knew his master's will and did not take heed or get ready to do the master's will will receive uh, greater Lashes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but you, you get the point. He's going to receive greater, a greater whipping than the one who didn't know his master's will and didn't get ready. On judgment day, not everybody's punishment is going to be exactly the same. According to Luke 12, you're going to have greater and lesser punishments in hell, I believe is what he's talking about. And folks, you have the knowledge of the gospel. Because that gospel is preached here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You know it. Are you acting in accordance with that gospel? And children, listen up, children. Your parents, what a blessing you have to have Christian parents or Christian uncles and aunts that pray with you, that tell you about Christ, that read the Bible to you. Do you know what privilege that is? There's so many millions of children across this country who don't have that blessing. They've got atheistic parents that God has never mentioned. Christ has never mentioned except as a swear word in their home. You have the truth that's, that's being given to you day after day by Christian godly parents. Do not despise that. Act in accordance with that. Act on those privileges. Believe the truth of the gospel for yourself, not just because mom and dad do it, but for your own heart, your own soul. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need Jesus Christ to save you from your sin and cast yourself on his mercy. Say, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm the sinner. I need Jesus Christ to save my soul. And adults, just because you attend services every Sunday doesn't mean that you're a true child of God. You have privileges here because the gospel is preached here. Don't take that for granted. Don't just walk out these doors and think, I'm okay because I went to a service. No, you're not. You need to be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ for yourself. So believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Flee to Christ. Lord, We come to you this morning. God, we ask, we first we just repent, Lord, because we see the shallowness of our desire for the salvation of lost people. We see how easily we can be distracted from the great commission that you've called all of us to. And Lord, we want to be more faithful in this regard. We want you to give us a greater heart, a bigger heart that can really feel joy as well as sorrow. And we pray that you would direct us and send us into the vineyard, that, Lord, there would, we, we would reap a harvest. We would see you reaping a harvest through your people. Lord, your word says those who sow in tears shall reap. Lord, give us a heart that has great sorrow and unceasing grief for those we see around us that are lost. 
Increase it in us, Lord. And Lord, if any are here that have not come to Jesus, bring them. Bring them by your grace, Lord. Call them. Draw them to Christ, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.